Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hello. Happy New Year. Listen, the human brain's fondness for narrative closure gives each new year the sense of a clean chapter break. But the reality, of course, is that events do not respect the arbitrary dividing line that comes at midnight on New Year's Eve. Any more than things just stop happening every time that we turn off our microphones and publish an episode of this podcast. What am I saying? Our stories rarely end just because we're finished telling them. Things keep happening. And one thing that we want to do a better job of going forward is giving you updates on the stories that we've published. So with that in mind, we're going to begin 2022 by telling you what has happened since with three stories that we first told you in 2021. Pretendians, porn, and getting priced out of life. Wait for them. This episode is brought to you by Emmett Rands, Graham Crawley, Denny Brown, Bilal Quadri, Bobby Christova, Joseph McPhee, Gregory Smith, and Krista. 
This is Krista, a cheerleading coach from Hamilton, and I support Canada Land because it offers me different points of views I don't usually hear on other podcasts or news companies. Shows all sides of the issues, holds everybody to account, um, and the programs I just find are really refreshing and informative. White people have been pretending to be Indigenous people ever since we first learned that Indigenous people existed. It's a weird phenomenon that began long before Grey Owl and has kept going after Joseph Boyden. But 2021 was a milestone year for the topic of pretendians. Might be the first year we started taking the issue seriously. Here on Canada Land, we explored this subject first through an episode about the film director and actress Michelle Latimer, who was revealed by CBC journalists to have misrepresented Indigenous identity. And on our coverage of that story, we talked with several Indigenous people about exactly what happened and exactly why and how it harmed people as much as it did. And then we brought you another story, this strange story from Queen's University in Kingston about an adjunct professor named Bob Lovelace. Lovelace has been a big deal at Queen's University for decades. He is an activist and an environmentalist who teaches what's called Aboriginal Studies at Queen's. And Lovelace has been a charismatic figure, a one-time Algonquin chief who spent time in jail for his opposition to a uranium mine and in doing so became a hero. There were protesters holding signs that read Mandela, Gandhi, Lovelace. In our coverage of that story, we learned that the whole field of Indigenous Studies at Queen's has kind of revolved around him and other members of his Ardoc Algonquin First Nation. They also work at Queen's. As it was described to us, the top guy at Queen's U when it came to Indigenous issues has been Bob Lovelace for as long as anybody can remember. Well, last June, we told you about an anonymous report that was making the rounds online, which claimed that Lovelace and five other staffers at Queen's were misrepresenting themselves as Indigenous. Lovelace himself was described by voices on the show as a white guy from Missouri who came to Canada to dodge the draft in 1969, and here he called himself an Algonquin and launched his own illegitimate First Nation, the non-status Ardoc Algonquins, a group that went on to make land claims. That is according to his critics. And Bob Lovelace, well, he briefly denied those allegations. Well, I, I don't have to defend myself. I know who I am. The university has uh, vetted my credentials over the years. I've been there over 25 years. And, uh, you know, there's nothing to, to, to say or defend myself in this. But the controversy persisted, and Canada Land's contributing editor, Danielle Parody, explored it in full. And she's kept her eye on this story and on other cases of so-called pretendians elsewhere in Canada. And she joins me now with an update. Hi, Danny. Hey, Jesse. So bring us up to date. What has happened at Queen's University since your story last summer? When I reported that story originally, Queen's had largely rejected the claims that any staff or faculty were falsely claiming Indigenous heritage. I recall that. I remember that they put out a statement initially, and then there was like a second statement where they got like Indigenous members of Queen's University to kind of re-up and say, we're standing by our people, and now you're hearing this from our own Indigenous people. So, you know, you can take mm -hmm. that to the bank. 
And they sort of insinuated that they would be doing investigations into where the allegations were coming from. That was the uh-huh. primary focus originally. Well, Jesse, it only took one week for the school to almost entirely switch tone after we aired that piece. The Honorable Marie Sinclair, chair of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was the incoming chancellor for the school, and he issued a video statement. Queen's is now facing a bit of a crisis. My view is that I think we need to really look at the way that Queen's has been hiring people, the way that they have been going about the identification of the criteria that are to be used when they're appointing people to positions which call for knowledge about Indigenous cultures, Indigenous practices, and Indigenous communities. It's over-reliance upon self-identification, it's over-reliance upon self-declaration is at the forefront of some of the issues. That's quite a thing for like, he's the incoming chancellor and then this issue falls on his lap and he goes against what the school was saying immediately prior to his relationship starting with Queen's. Yeah, you sort of wonder what the interview process was like there, huh? (laughs) So the conversation went from denying that there were any issues to holding conversations and sending surveys to students, and that's where they're at right now. I reached out to Queen's to see what they had done so far, and they sent me to a press release saying that they had hired an Indigenous-led consulting firm called First Peoples Group. So far, two sessions have already taken place, one with the Ontario Council of Universities Reference Group on Indigenous Education, and one with the Queen's Elders Advisory Circle. You know, Danny, like when we ran this story, and what was wild to me about this story was this guy Bob Lovelace himself, and just he he was really at the center of not just the controversy, but Indigenous representation at Queen's writ large seemed to kind of revolve around this guy and his RDOC group. And without taking any kind of position on their legitimacy or not, like it, it seems that Queen's for many years accepted at face value that this was a legitimate Indigenous group. And a lot of the other faculty members associated with Bob were also associated with RDOC. And when we learned about him that he, he had come from the States, it seems like he was adopted into uh, some kind of Algonquin mm-hmm. association and, you know, and, and just kind of considered himself to be Algonquin. And this was just ex- like, it occurred to me that this is probably something that is going to happen over and over again. You know, like there are all these people across Canada who have like been self-identifying as Indigenous for decades. They are very established in universities, maybe in companies, other institutions, whatever. And maybe nobody ever checked. Maybe nobody at those institutions knew how to check or was in a position to check. And now all of a sudden you have Indigenous voices speaking up and saying, yeah, we have been aware of pretenders in your organizations for years, but nobody was listening to us. And, and maybe now we're finally listening. So where is this left? Like, it's interesting that there's like a consultation group that's like, okay, like, we don't know how to do this. So let's outsource this to a First Nations consultancy that actually knows how to le- legitimize and falsify or verify these claims. Like, w- what are the best practices and where's the conversation at now? So what we're seeing, um, these conversations are really trying to reconcile two totally different worldviews. You have Indigenous communities each individual Indigenous community's understanding of what it is to be Indigenous and what it is to be a member. And then you have colonial law 
you have the Indian Act, uh, and that's the legislation that segregated Indigenous people and moved them off of their traditional territories. I mean, RDOC has hinted at this. Other conversations about Indigenous identity talk about this too, but the Indian Act is both a separating tool and a tool used to define who belongs, who counts as Indigenous. At the same time, we're seeing the fallout of residential schools and the 60s scoop, where there were people who are trying to now reclaim identities that they lost through being removed from their home uh, as children or through going to school and, and losing touch with their families. So I returned to one of the people that I interviewed for my original report to see what he had to say. And his general take is that the issue isn't that complicated, but Canada as a country struggles to let Indigenous communities determine who belongs. I went back to talk to Kyle St. Amour Brennan. He's a member of the Kitigan ZB Ashinaabeg First Nation. As an Algonquin Ashinaabeg member, Kyle has been very outspoken about claims of false Indigenous identity and Indigenous identity fraud. Here's what he had to say. I mean, a lot of the conversation around Indigenous identity fraud in general has been inflamed, and I think it's it's challenging on so many fronts just because, uh, you know, I think a lot of focus is put upon the individual responsibility, the individual actors in terms of misrepresenting themselves and I think now what we've sort of seen because of that is there's a heightened or inflamed antagonism towards uh, towards identity fraud, especially Algonquin identity fraud, because it has been so prominent for the last, you know, 25 years, I'd say, like ever since the uh, Ontario land claim really got started. <laughs> I mean, that just seems to be the playbook, right? The colonial playbook, in a sense. There's a sort of blind optimism that we are moralistically doing this in... in, in uh, in the right way, and then eventually a, a denialism of that, and then then when irrefutable facts come to the forefront, then there's a sudden like you know crisis of identity for both you know Canadians and you know people with Indigenous ancestry that suddenly have to force force them to re refactor things or, or kind of uh, rethink things. So to me, it's like Kyle said, there's more cynicism in the Indigenous community, and at the same time, there's not a lot of progress around this discussion. So what's happening with Bob? Like, is is he just sort of like anxiously standing by while his institution that initially defended him now has Maurice Sinclair saying, yeah, no, actually, we're going to look into this. And I guess, like, is he still teaching? Do we know? So he's still listed as a sessional instructor and he's still teaching courses uh, within their Indigenous knowledge uh, curriculum. So yeah, he's still teaching. He was, and I, as far as I know, still is on the Elders Council that was a part of the talking circles or discussions that they had with the First Peoples Group consultant. So there's not really been a reckoning with Bob Lovelace's identity. It seems like it's just steady as it goes for him. That must be such a weird class to be in. <laughs> well, I mean, young people don't really pay that much attention to the news. <laughs> there has been more news, though. And I, I took note of, uh, yeah, as, as I anticipated, like, there have been other stories like this across the country. More recently, Carrie Burassa, who is a professor in the Department of Community Health and Epidemiology at the University of Saskatchewan, was put on leave while the University of Saskatchewan investigated claims of, of false identity from her. Now, I didn't dig into this one 
too deeply, but I did take note just of the visuals of the story. And and listeners might want to just like look up Carrie Barassa. And what you'll see in her 2019 TEDx talk, she introduces herself as Morning Star Bear. She is wearing this colorful, beautiful, flowing robe. She has dark hair. She is of non-white complexion and is really visually looking like very indigenous in her presentation. And then I'm looking at CBC coverage and the New York Post picked up this story and they've got her parents and there are these lovely looking middle-class white people in Regina. There's a picture of her blonde sister here who stopped claiming to be Métis in 2014 after researching her family tree. It does, it does start to look like something of a costume. Yeah, it's, um, so in her own narrative of indigenous identity, she's long credited uh, Clifford LaRock, who's a Métis elder, um, long deceased, who helped her identify with the with Métis when she was in her early 20s. So she's saying that she was adopted by him, and he did that after he claimed to research her ancestry. It It's a very weird story, and, and coupled with the images that you've described of, of somebody in, like, it's not really regalia, but uh, indigenous dressing, I would say. She's, she's wearing the sash. She's got the flowy robe. Um, she's the, the TED Talk is really something as well. So when you when you look back on this after somebody's been put on leave with fall with claims of their identity being false, uh, it just it becomes like it just looks like a costume now in the wake of those allegations. I mean, even maybe more than a costume. I don't mean to be crude here, but it looks like like a t- like a tanning salon situation or something. It's like a Justin Trudeau Halloween costume situation. Yeah, except like this is who I really am was the was the concept. You know, we've looked at this on a number of episodes, and we're having a laugh now. I mean, I think there is definitely a humorous aspect to this, but what came across so poignantly when speaking to people in our coverage of the Michelle Latimer case was that this hurts. This hurts. In so many ways, this hurts because space is taken, opportunities are given that should go to other people. This hurts because it's such a further loss of control to not even be able to control. Like, as we heard Kyle say there, like, it's it's almost like the ultimate disempowerment to not even be able to say who's included in your group and who isn't. Queens is one of the first places where this discussion reached a point that it could no longer be ignored. But they're also a place that we haven't seen a lot of progress since June when the story first broke. Do you see this as sort of something that like flares up as a 2021 thing and then fades away? Or do you think it's just like time's up for pretendians? I think um, you can't have the conversation about pretendians without thinking back to what Kyle was talking about with like the Algonquin land claim and indigenous sovereignty. So those discussions are, are gaining traction and it's definitely it's not over for either of them. Danny, thanks. Thanks, Jesse. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. A note to listeners. This segment mentions sexual assault. Last summer, we brought you a story about one of the biggest tech companies in the world. And it happens to be based right here in Canada. MindGeek. Hardly a household name, but uh, I think that maybe you've heard of its main website. That site is Pornhub. You might also be familiar with RedTube, YouPorn, Brazzers. Maybe you don't know them, but statistically you probably do. These sites uh, consistently rank among the most visited in the world, Pornhub in particular. Despite the size and popularity of MindGeek's platforms, the company has long evaded serious media attention and public scrutiny. Well, that changed last December when the New York Times published a long investigative feature by Nicholas Kristof detailing how MindGeek was able to profit from videos that allegedly depicted sexual assault and rape. Kristoff wrote that Pornhub monetizes child rape, revenge pornography, spy cam videos of women showering, and more. Well, that got everyone's attention here in Canada, and a parliamentary committee on access to information, privacy, and ethics was tasked with getting to the bottom of what was going on. Young woman, then 19 years old, Serena Fletas from Bakersfield, California, detailed to the parliamentary committee what had happened to her years earlier. And one night, this is during the last um, last semester of my seventh grade year. Uh, they, the boy I was dating at the time, he asked me um, to send him a video of myself. And I didn't really understand what he meant at first. So he had sent me a video from Pornhub of a girl undressing herself and just basically showing herself off to the camera. And he asked me to do that. And I told him I wasn't really comfortable. So he continued to ask me every night after we got back from school. 
And he's like, oh, it's perfectly fine. You know, everybody does it. Everybody our age is doing that. And if if we're really in a relationship, if you truly love me, then you'd send me something like that. And so um, I took a quick little video, like a minute long, and I sent it to him. And for the first couple of days afterwards, I didn't notice any difference. Um, but then his friend group started coming up to us during lunch and making little comments um, about like my body and about how I was a freak. Um, and so it went around the entire school and all the neighboring schools. And then during the summer break before eighth grade, um, we moved. So I thought, you know, okay, things would be better because at that point I didn't know that other people had seen it or that it had been posted online. But when I started at the new school, after about two weeks of being there, somebody who had made an anonymous account sent me a link through kick. And it was the video that I had sent to my ex-boyfriend and it had been posted on Pornhub with the caption, 13 year old brunette shows off for the camera. Um, and so after that, I started ditching school a lot, started getting really depressed, um, started getting into drug use. Members of Parliament also heard testimony about how human trafficking rings have profited from Pornhub. MindGeek's CEO, Ferres Antoun, disputed that the site was to blame for the distribution of these types of videos, and he cited a rigorous vetting policy. However, after Christoph's piece, Pornhub undertook a complete overhaul of their system anyhow, eliminating the ability for just anybody to submit a video. From then on, users had to be verified first. And those millions of videos uploaded by unverified users, which at the time represented a majority of Pornhub's content, well, those videos were purged. They disappeared. And at about the same time, Visa and MasterCard stopped processing payments on Pornhub. And as you heard on our report, those changes had major impacts on unintended victims of those changes, legitimate sex workers who use the platform, many of whom saw their sources of income disappear overnight. Now, you also heard on that report how a puritanical Christian group called Exodus Cry had spent an awful lot of time and resource pushing this narrative of Pornhub's uh, abuses in the hopes of having Pornhub shut down for good. Critics of the New York Times coverage felt that Nicholas Kristof was laundering Exodus Cry's puritanical campaign. Well, multiple lawsuits were filed against MindGeek by people who say that they are survivors of the abuse that the company monetized and perpetuated. But what happened after that? Jonathan Goldsby has been following this story, and he's with me now with a few updates for us. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. Okay, so I, I think that listeners might conclude that if Visa and MasterCard cut you off, that's it. I mean, e-commerce all seems to go through through credit cards. That would be the end of the road. Was that the case? Where is MindGeek now financially? Well, the short answer is that it's too soon to say. Um, too soon to say for sure. We'll probably never know for sure. They probably did okay. Uh, a few weeks ago, The Logic ran an exclusive headline, MindGeek payouts to owners grew amid scrutiny over a legal content new filing show. I saw that. This is kind of like yeah. they actually made more money during this was the implication. I exactly. But 
the headline was kind of misleading since the filings that the, the article describes, which were uh, recent filings like from the last month in Luxembourg, which is where MindGeek is officially registered, those filings only cover the calendar year 2020. So while it's true that there was a year-over-year jump in dividends paid out to the company's secret of owners from about $9.9 million U.S. in 2019 to about $11.4 million in 2020 – the company's crisis didn't actually start until Christoph's story in The Times appeared in early December of 2020. So, and then the backlash from the credit card companies and Pornhub's own content purge came several days after that. So mid-December of last year. A lagging indicator, as they say. It, exactly. Exactly. So we just got the numbers for all of 2020, but their crisis really only started like early, mid-December of last year. So unless the dividends were calculated and paid out as one big lump sum at the very end of the year, they probably don't reflect the post-New York Times spiraling one way or the other. So, for like, for example, Christoph's piece mentioned how Pornhub had more monthly users than Netflix, Yahoo, or Amazon. But these days, data from similar web, just from a couple months, from about a month ago, uh, puts Pornhub's traffic behind all three of those. Uh, Pornhub now just has to be content with merely sitting ahead of Reddit, Zoom, and Office.com. Now, we don't know the methodology that Christoph used, and he was obviously trying to present them as the most popular. Well, no. The, the information he had was probably accurate at the time. He took a figure of 3.5 billion monthly users, which was presented in uh, their annual their, their public annual report they put on their website for 2019. And then he compared that to uh, – I forget which specifically, but he compared that to data for those sites at the time. At the time, that was probably true. Like that, that... So they are way down since Christoph's piece. They are way down, but they're still one of the top sites on the on the internet, which is what I'm saying. Is like they were one of the top like ten sites. Now they're like probably in the top twenty. It may be out of the purview of this conversation, but like, does that mean that people stopped looking at porn so much, or do they just go elsewhere? I, I kind of assume the latter. Uh, well, I mean, if they purge, if they actually purge two thirds of the content off the site, there simply isn't as much to see, and that would, I mean, that immediately, as soon as you have only a third of the number of videos on your site, chances are it's taking a dip. I, I suspect that's, that that was the single largest thing. I'm also kind of like uh, surprised by how small those figures are in, in terms of profits for the for the founders. Uh, you know, well, uh, 11 yeah. million, 14 million. I, I thought they were making a lot more than that. Yeah, I mean, they, they almost certainly are. I mean, that's what we know. I mean, you know, it's a nice thing. I mean, for you know all what you'd imagine about uh, companies registered in Luxembourg, you can actually learn more about private companies that are registered there than you can about privately held companies that are registered here. So we do know about the dividends paid out by the main entity in uh, Pornhub. But, you know, that's almost certainly just one piece of what the owners actually made. Because, you know, as you might expect for a transnational internet pornography conglomerate, it does not have the most straightforward corporate structure with there being, you know, quite a few entities in quite a few countries. So we can't say for sure how MindGeek's owners made out in the wake of Christoph's story, uh, although Christoph is now running for governor of Oregon. So that's, I, you know, I don't know that has anything, probably has nothing to do with it, obviously, but uh, I just think that's an interesting detail. I think it's possible it has something to do with it. The crusading nature of a lot of his journalism, uh, you know, for him to run for public office feels like perhaps he was prepping for that for some time. Yeah, he's seeking the Democratic nomination. So he's not on the ballot yet, but uh, we'll know in May. You know, the expose on MindGeek and Pornhub placed this massive tech giant, you know, perhaps one that was not really like put Mm -hmm. in the same fang class as the other, but it placed MindGeek in that class as bad tech that needs to be regulated. 
Oh yeah, uh, right. I mean, and, I, like all of a sudden, it was uh, you know the knives I mean, are out for 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 them uh, along with everybody else for very different types of abuses. And it's amazing they didn't escape scrutiny for as long as they did, frankly. So you know the party's over. Like does that like suggest that uh, they've built this thing up? You know they, they've hit their peak and now it's just going to be like this is a good time to cut and run. Yeah, I mean there are a, not a small number of people who would like to buy it who have been hoping that's the case. Uh, so this just a couple months ago, The Globe reported that there are at least three groups of Canadian investors, emphasis mine, that have tried to buy MangGeek just like since this summer. Uh, you know, not necessarily the best rates, but like they've been wanting it. The, the idea, presumably, that the selling price will never be lower than it was this year. So sort of like, I guess, when you wanted to buy uh, candlelight ads on the subway this past year. It's like, we're never going to get a better deal than this. Might as well go for it. Uh, but the mysterious Austrian with a majority stake in the company, says the Globe, has been reluctant to sell. The mysterious Austrian? There is a mysterious Austrian, or Austrian Brit, perhaps. But uh, so here's a clip from Ferris Antoon, who was MindGeek CEO, being questioned by NDP MP Charlie Angus at the Parliamentary Committee last February. The majority shareholder owning over 50% of the company is a European national residing outside of Canada. The structure of the company has so been who's, European who's for ten... European? Who's, who is the European national? Uh, his name is Bernd Bergmeier, and he owns over 50%. He is a okay. passive investor, not involved in daily activity. Uh, the, the European structure of the company dates for over 10 years. Okay, thank you. That's that's very helpful. So good on Charlie Angus for nailing that down because it was the first time the company had ever actually confirmed Bergmayer's identity. Uh, and we should note here that like... It's wonderful to cash checks if you're an owner of MindGeek or Pornhub, but maybe you don't want your name out there. There's some liability beyond whatever social stigma comes with it. You know, Ferris Antoon, his massive mansion in, in Montreal was burned down. So you could see why this uh, yeah. why this burned Bergmayer uh, may have wanted to keep a low profile up until this parliamentary committee. It's, but it's still remarkable that he had successfully done so. I mean, his name had come out in the Financial Times like a couple months earlier, but they got the spelling wrong. And even then, like, they couldn't actually get confirmation. So this was the first time that it had like ever that not MindGeek itself had ever confirmed it. And that's kind of incredible given the scale of this kind of presence of this company and the profile of it too. Uh, so Bergmayer was finally tracked down a few months after that parliamentary committee meeting by the British slow news startup Tortoise Media, which found the geographic coordinates of his London mansion buried in the metadata of a photo on his wife's blog. First of all, Let's just take a second because that's awesome. It is amazing. They, it's uh, yeah, it, it's wonderful. That's the best. Way. I mean, they they tried they had to try like dozens of photos, running them through an XF, so it's like an XF viewer, like a meditative viewer, to see maybe one had it. And you know, I, I you know, even I would only try like a few before saying fuck this. They're not going to have this info. This person's too careful. But no, they eventually found it, figured out where he lived, and uh, published an investigation and podcast episode called Hunt for the Porn King. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is that him? I think that's him. Yes, it is. Mr. Bergmeier, hi. I'm I'm very sorry to disturb you at your your house. I just wondered if I could ask you a few questions about MindGeek. Do you mind? We're producing a story about MindGeek, sir, and a lot of the victims on Pornhub. A lot of the victims on Pornhub are very anxious to hear what you think about how Pornhub allowed lots of horrible videos to be on their, on their site. So do you have anything to say? So he didn't have anything to say, but his wife soon told the Sunday Times in London that he wanted out of the business. Curious then that he hasn't gotten out 
of the porno business. Uh, do we know anything about? Well, do we know anything about who has been interested in in buying MindGeek? Yeah, so as the Globe reported, there are at least three groups of Canadian investors who had tried. Uh, one offer came from a group headed by one of the co-founders of Yogenfrews. And <laughs> another bid was from a guy named Chuck Rafici, who used to be the volunteer CFO of the Liberal Party of Canada, uh, until, you know, making a, a good deal of money in the uh, legal weed market. Wait, the, the, the former chief financial officer of the federal... Liberal Party tried to buy Pornhub? Uh, yes, yes. At least, at least according to The Globe and The Logic and possibly others who have reported on it. As The Logic's Martin Patrick have reported in a delightful piece in mid-December, uh, Rafici's bid was called Project Narsil after a sword in Lord of the Rings. And it involved him forming a private equity company called Brunin after a river in Lord of the Rings. Imagining a fellowship of the rings, uh, heroes united to buy a big porno company. I'm guessing that's what he had in mind. If there were further illustrations of that idea, I really think uh, Patrick Camp probably would have put them in the story. So I'm guessing there weren't that were evident. So, But he did get a look at the pitch deck that the company uh, had made to show potential investors. One page displayed the logos of some of the places the company's staff had previously worked, including the Liberal Party of Canada and the RCMP. So when Patrick asked those you know, organizations for comment on their logos having shown up as part of a bid to buy Pornhub, they, you know, they weren't too happy to find out about this. So that's a score for Marty because it's like the yeah. paper trail that you want. It's oh, like, it's yeah. one thing if the guy has this very senior affiliation to the Liberal Party of Canada, but basically he's trading on that affiliation. The logo of the Liberal Party is part of his investor package. Like, I'm the guy to do this because look where I've been. I've worked for the Liberal Party. I'm a legit dude. So I mean, it's possible there were others in that group who were connected beyond, who had been connected to the Liberals beyond him. I would say just on, on the odds are not bad. That's the case. But yeah, basically that's what Patrick Cameron reported. I mentioned earlier that, you know, there's this class action lawsuit against MindGeek. Mm -hmm. uh, any movement on that? So perhaps the question is, which class action suit? Uh, so there's an application for a Canadian class action on behalf of people whose intimate videos or photos were posted without their consent. That was submitted to Quebec's Superior Court at the end of last year. The court is yet to hear it, but Siskins, the firm handling the case, did recently file an amended application, sort of taking into account a lot of the things that have happened and come out over the past year and naming a whole bunch of additional defendants. So where the original application for a class action named one company in Quebec, one company in Luxembourg, and three companies in Cyprus, the amended application adds a company in California, a company in Ireland, four more companies in Quebec, plus three individuals. As I said, not the most straightforward corporate structure. But all of these entities are MindGeek-associated entities? I mean, that's what the suit asserts. And I, I could draw you a flowchart, but I imagine that would be of limited value for a podcast. Um, there's also a proposed class action in the States uh, on behalf of people who allege they were under 18 when they appeared in videos uploaded to the site. That suit left over a significant hurdle in September when a judge in California ruled that MindGeek is not fully protected by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. That's the law, this goes back about 25 years, that has laid the foundation for everything that's both good and bad about the internet. It shields platforms from liability for user-generated content. But since 2018, that immunity hasn't uh, covered suits relating to sex trafficking. It also doesn't apply when a platform had a hand in creating the offending content. And in this case, the judge found that MindGeek's conduct, quote, materially contributed to the creation of child pornography on its platforms, end quote. 
Judge Cormac Carney gave a lot of weight to the plaintiff's argument, which is that Pornhub was set up in a way that helped such content reach its intended audience, such as through curated playlists with titles like less than 18. Hard, hard to make the case that you're just sort of a, a, a dumb uh, passive, passive pipe for... Unknown. Exactly. I'm not, there's no entendre here uh, when you're actually no. like making a playlist and saying, here's the less than 18 videos. Exactly. Yeah. So there are the plaintiffs had offered a number of examples of things like that. So that suit continues to march forward. And then there's another one, another proposed class action in Alabama. That, and, that one I remember announced with some fiery language, like moral crusading language against the, these evil pornographers. I actually don't know as much about that one. That one's still clanking around through the courts as well. I read a little bit about that, but uh, I would assume there was moral, fiery moral language. I mean, they all kind of have fiery moral language in one regard, in one respect or another. That's almost inherent in the nature of this type of class action lawsuit. Um, Although I imagine Alabama's were in uh, a certain accent, um, but maybe that's- One would imagine. Yes. Um, And then there was also another lawsuit in a different district of California, not a class action, but it did have 50 plaintiffs, including four Canadians who alleged that one of Pornhub's content partners had coerced them into recording pornographic videos and also lied about where and how those videos would be distributed, claiming they'd just be overseas on DVD only. MyGeek settled that suit in October for an undisclosed sum. You know, I'm focused here on on uh, the the political angle of people. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's it's just sort of like whether you're coming from the left or the right. I mean, Charlie Angus was like absolutely mm-hmm. breathing fire over this. Uh, that there's sort of it's hard to imagine a more sinister villain than these profiteers who are linked, and this is this is real to child rape and exploitation and human trafficking. The Chain of exploitation here is complicated, but it got a bit reductive in the, uh, you know, the accusations. But sure, people were harmed and hurt and exploited. And, it, it you know, on the flip side of those mustache twirling villains who are trying to hide their names, you have real innocents who are harmed terribly. And in that very polarized narrative of mm-hmm. like good versus yeah. evil, who the fuck cares about some sex workers? Who got crunched in 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 the in the mix here and and had their livelihoods and, and their safety in, in yeah, some cases? Yeah, I mean that is the I mean that is the trouble and that is the contradiction of this whole thing is that on the one hand, you genuinely have what it, well you have what very much appears to be a you know a, a large tech company that like other large tech companies has escaped regulation and scrutiny for a long time and amassed massive power and had a lot of influence and changed a lot of people's lives without ever really being subject to or being held to account for the often foreseeable consequences of what its platform does, which is an absolute thing. But on the, and then on the other side, you have our bright Christian moral crusaders who, you know, going after Pornhub largely just because it's the biggest pornographic site and part of a moral crusade against porn. And yeah, caught in the middle are and have been sex workers who use the platform as a means to make money, legitimate sex workers who... Consensually. People who have agency, people who are not being exploited. This is the kind of porn that we all hope for. This is... Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. So my question for you, Jonathan, is in, in, in that, like, labyrinth of lawsuits, do the legit sex workers have any recourse? Are they engaged in any kind of process against MindGeek? I couldn't find any evidence of that. So I asked Danny Pease Charlie Angus, who sat on the committee, if maybe there was something I'd overlooked. Here's what he told us in a written reply. The Pornhub study was not a study into pornography, but whether a Canadian-based data giant was ignoring its obligations under Canadian law to report and deal with videos relating to child abuse, sexual assault, or non-consensual exploitation. 
From our questioning of survivors of abuse, we were deeply concerned about a corporate culture of indifference to serious allegations of abuse. It was much more concerning to learn that the RCMP and federal officials were unwilling to apply existing laws which could have mitigated this exploitation. So far, the government has made no effort to respond to our request for action to protect survivors of online sexual exploitation. That's a lot of words to say no. Uh, It's a lot of prefacing one sentence that answers the question no. Yes, correct. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. A couple of months back, we talked about medically assisted dying. In March 2021, the Liberals and Bloc Québécois passed legislation that expanded eligibility for medically assisted dying, or MAID. Notably, the requirement that your illness needed to be terminal in order to qualify was eliminated. This change in the federal legislation meant that people who were suffering from chronic conditions, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, could choose to die with the help of a healthcare provider. The intent of this amendment was humanitarian. Like, do you really need to be at death's door with a terminal illness in order to qualify for MAID? What if you are just in such terrible suffering that your quality of life, your life has no dignity? Why not allow people like that to choose MAID as well? The problem is that there is a not insignificant number of people out there who can manage their illnesses, who can live in relative comfort and dignity, but only if their treatments and supports are properly funded. If they don't have those resources, only then would they prefer to die. Doctors spoke to lawmakers about how these changes provide an escape hatch for marginalized people who the healthcare system fails. I have had many such death wishes of patients who've had strokes and during COVID there was not enough help to come to the home and couldn't open the containers for them to eat. I take care of very, very marginalized patients. So constantly fighting for things like housing, resources in the home, social support, pain control, access to meds that they can't afford. There are many barriers that lead patients to have death wishes every day. For many chronic conditions, treatment might exist but it's often really expensive. So we introduced you to Madeline. That was not her real name, but it is the name that she has used when speaking publicly about her choice to one day choose medically assisted death. I am in my 50s, half a century baby and counting. I am in Vancouver, BC, and I am like about six weeks away from running out of money. Um, six weeks away from not getting to stay alive anymore. I am focusing on Halloween because I love Halloween. I get to stay alive through Halloween. Madeline described what it was like to live with chronic fatigue and chronic pain for decades, a result of post-viral syndrome for which there is no cure and for which there are few provincially covered treatment options. She was counting down the days till the end of October when she estimated that she would run out of money for the naturopathic treatments, the only treatments that she's ever found have worked for her. And after that, she told us that she would choose medically assisted death. I'm trying really hard not to freak out because um, 
I mean, I'm grateful that MAID exists. It beats the hell out of a prolonged, slow death. But, but that I'm facing death for something that can be managed is bloody ridiculous. So whatever happened to Madeline? When we left her, she was not expecting to live past Halloween. Reporter Cherie Sucherin brought us this story originally, and she joins me now for the update. Hi, Cherise. Hey, Jesse. Well, I guess question one is a pretty obvious one. Is Madeline still alive? Yes, she is. And it's because of help from her audience members, actually. Uh, Madeline told me that she saw a small boost in her GoFundMe right after her episode aired. And then a few of her friends ended up also donating some money to keep her going. However, it, it's still not a lot. She says that the amount will keep her going until sometime in January. And then she's also had to cut down on treatments to the point where she only has, you know, a few good days a week where she's feeling good. I reached her on the phone at her home in Vancouver and I asked her how she was doing. I'm still here. What changed? Yeah, what changed? <laughs> I mean, you're very happy you're still here. But well, um, how are the, you still here? Your episode. You know, it, it, it gave the GoFundMe a little push. So between that, I had some friends um, give me some money as well to keep me going, which was brilliant. It was a real it's blessing. Really nice, yeah. yeah, it was really, I feel bad. And then I dropped my treatments. I dropped my treatments in November. Um, you know, the oral and intravenous scaffolding, I pulled back on the amount that I was doing, um, the, the intravenous in particular. Um, I went from um, three to two in November. And now I've dropped it to one. and um, That's per week? Per week, yeah. Yeah. And so, so I'm falling apart. Cherise, there's no polite way to ask this. Do you think it's possible that we got played? As eager as I might be to, like, think that, like, Canada Land helped save somebody's life, I do have to wonder, like, is it possible that this is a woman who never really had an intention to seek medically assisted death? Somebody who who tells people that she is prepared to go ahead and do that if she runs out of money and, and that gets sympathy and that gets donations, you know, from our listeners. I'm really glad you asked that, actually, Jesse. So I know there's been some pushback on social media, on Twitter, and, you know, from you, of course, um, about the authenticity of her story. And I do want to say, you know, just backing up, as a journalist, I believe I've done my due diligence to first confirm her identity, and then second to confirm that she has indeed requested MAID. So I've seen documents showing the MAID approval from her doctor, and I've also seen some other evidence that her situation is as she describes it to be. And the thing is, you know, when I think about other people that I've spoken to who talk about living with chronic illness and also struggling with poverty and you know, the access to support, to the point where MAID is being considered, you know, they all echo Madeline's story. There's nothing, actually, about her story that strikes me as unusual or out of the ordinary for people in that position. So I get why there is pushback, but I do want to clarify that she sought out these treatments because there's pretty much nothing else to treat her illness. It's largely understudied, and like many people with chronic illnesses that aren't well understood, she's had to go off and find treatments that work for her outside of the traditional medical system because it no longer offers her anything that helps. So people with illnesses such as myelogic encephalitis, like Madeline has, 
or even things like fibromyalgia, for which there is no cure, they end up in these positions. Yeah, I guess the point is not so much like an endorsement or a falsification of naturopathy as much as like a recognition that there are many, many people out there who have things that just we don't have solutions for, we don't have treatments yeah, for. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when I spoke to her, she also mentioned that, you know, it's not just ME, which is like her illness, but it's other things like CRPS, other types of chronic illness which cause pain and sort of, um, you know, require extensive supports. These things, there is no cure for it. So if people find that, you know, a naturopathic or homeopathic treatment ends up working for them, you know, I, I don't blame them. That is actually quite common. Well, I know you spoke with her about that, too. Let's hear what she had to say. And I find it really, really hard because people don't understand what end-of-life costs because in other illnesses, you do not see the price tag, you know? Chemotherapy is $100,000 just for the chemo. Kidney dialysis is $70,000, not for any of the other supports a person in, in end-of-life needs. So when we talk about the $100,000, what we're, what we're talking about, is, it, that isn't just naturopathic treatments. That's a host of supports that you need when you're in this state of deterioration. And I also think overall, you know, when I spoke to her, she has this visceral anger at the systems that have failed people with chronic illness, like the medical system, the provincial disability support system, the idea that CERB support payments during COVID ended up being more than people with disability actually get per month. She expressed this concern also for the growing number of people with long COVID, which is a disease which many studies show may actually be similar or even the same as what she has. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about her having post-viral syndrome, of course, my mind goes to COVID. Yeah, it's um, definitely there's a lot of research around why the way that her illness, which is ME, sort of acts the same as long COVID and The more people that we see with COVID, the more people we're going to see with long COVID. I cannot allow somebody else to suffer what I've suffered. And this is happening to children. It will happen the same way it's happened to me. But it's brutalizing people of all ages. Enough. Enough. And not just for me. Not just for me. Fiscally irresponsible and a human rights violation at its very core. This is what's happening to my long COVID fellows. This is what's happened to me. This is what's happening to me. So I, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do, Sharice. Sharice, you and I discussed all of this prior to running the initial story. And there were a couple of things back then that made me feel that, that publishing it was absolutely the right call. One was that in addition to the diligence you did with with Madeline and and confirming like you know who she actually is you know that she has you know whether she will actually go through with it or not she's telling not just you this but she's gone and spoken to a doctor about it and in so far as you can research whether she's legitimate she's legitimate um, but moreover and more compelling to me than that was that you documented that this absolutely does go well beyond Madeline mm-hmm. there are lots of people who will choose medically assisted death, but only if they can't get enough money to properly manage their illnesses. And and they have awareness that they can live with dignity and comfort to the extent that they want to stay alive. 
if that funding is available. And if it isn't, they'd rather die. And that's a real thing, people being priced out of life. The second reason why I felt like this was an important story to run was like, I kind of thought, what what are we looking at here? Like, is the worst case scenario here that she isn't serious <laughs> about ending her life and that we get screwed because like, 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 are we happier if her money runs out and she does seek medically assisted death? Okay, the story is legit. She went through with it. Because, like, the purpose for that for us is, okay, now we have definitive verification of the legitimacy of our podcast now that this person is gone. Uh, So, like, that's not a situation where I feel like I'm okay to be wrong. (laughs) I'd rather be wrong in that situation. So I guess there was a certain bit of trust required to tell her story, which I was okay with, you know, that leap of faith, as long as we're upfront about that with the listener. I'm glad that she is still alive and, and that thousands of people now know about this loophole in our maid laws. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about Madeline's story. It's she is able to speak for people that cannot speak. So you don't necessarily hear these stories very often. And I think there's maybe a lot of sort of questioning around whether or not it's valid or legitimate or is there something actually that's happening in Canada? But it is. I've, I've heard from many people who have talked about it. And she's just one of those people that, you know, is comfortable enough to actually tell story to the media. So we're hearing it from Madeline, but this is the the story of many people. Thanks, Cherise. Thanks. All right, that's your Canada Land. Hey, if you are scrambling to give somebody a gift, it is not too late. You can give the gift of Canada Land Premium to the person who might enjoy it when you go to canadaland.com slash gift. Email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced by Tristan Capicione. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by So-Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support us by going to canadaland.com slash join or just click the link in the show notes. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.